Welcome to Scores and Pours, the podcast where you learn about wine and classical music, hosted by me, radio host Emily Reese, and sommelier Jill Mott. Today we're going to hula. I mean, we're going to talk about tropical things. Tropical things in the world of spirits and, surprisingly, in the world of classical music. Check out patreon.com slash scoresandpours for a playlist, a spirits list, and consider supporting the musicians you hear by buying their music. Emily Reese. Hello, Jill Mott. Good day. Good day. It's beautiful out. Are you excited about tropical? I am because there's four bottles of rum in front of you. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. I think in Minneapolis, I can only speak for myself, but you know, I know a lot of my fellow man and woman and the Mm non-binaries, we all just don't like 30 below. No. But I do relish in some 93 degrees. Yeah. So this episode's perf. For my world. Yeah, it's a warm one today, and it's hot in the house right now, and we're going to have, I think, a Mai Tai. It's true. I'm going to talk about the tropical nature and notions that are rum, rum agricole, industrial rum, and we'll break apart that. And of course, then, I mean, we're going to put it in a cocktail, and who doesn't want to not put it in a Mai Tai? I've (laughs) wanted that since frickin' August 31st of last year. Yeah. So... (laughs) Uh, I'm going to talk about a composer from Haiti, and I'm going to talk about a composer from Venezuela. Two tropical places. Mm -hmm. Okay. You may say, Jill, no tropical wine? I mean, did that cross your mind? Not really, but it. ask me that again and I'll pretend it did. No, that's okay. So in the Northern Hemisphere and the Southern Hemisphere, we start at respectively about the 50-degree latitude range, which is, you know, for the Northern Hemisphere, we're at like British Columbia, we're in, you know, we're in England, Cliffs of Dover, they're making great um, sparkling wines. In the Southern Hemisphere, we're down by New Zealand and very, you know, we're not much further south than that, Argentina, of course. And then either way... North and Southern Hemisphere, respectively, mm-hmm. we close in on the equator. Mm-hmm. And once we reach the tropics, so Cancer and Capricorn, which are 23 point something degrees, I forget, it's, it's too hot to grow grapes. There are very okay. few places that grow grapes that are worthy of making wine. Now, granted, those northern latitudes, are they changing because of global warming? Sure. This episode's not about global warming. Yeah. We're going to focus on my favorite place in the world, between the Tropic of Cancer and the Tropic of Capricorn, where it's one of my favorite places on Earth. Hot, humid. What spirit is most known in that area? Rum. 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 Yes, so I'm going to talk about rum. I look forward to it. Well, let's talk about rum right now. Okay. (laughs) Don't mind if I do. First of all, rum is mostly made out of the majority of industrial and artisanal rums we have. We're separating rum agricole for a short bit. Okay. Rums are made by fermenting a byproduct of sh- the sugar making process. So we have sugarcane juice, beet sugar juice, molasses, and th- that has to be fermented into like a molasses wine. Or a, and I would get into bagasse. I would get into like 
even more by I won't we're not going to go there. Okay. We're taking molasses and we're thinning it out because if not it'd be way too sweet. Yeasts would never have a chance to start even feeding on that until there's a fermentation that's happened and then you make a sugarcane wine or a molasses wine and then you ferment that. They're 9 out of 10 times they're done with industrial yeasts and once they've been distilled a few different times in a column still. A column still is different than a pot still because a column still, you can continuously run it. They're also known as continuous stills. Okay. So you can run, you know, one distillation, two distillations, three distillations. You can continually put what's been distilled back in to get to more and more and more of the heart of the product, they call it. And you're left with like a cleaner spirit, which is really nice. What you end up doing then is you end up diluting it you know, with a little bit of beautiful, like great quality water down to whatever strength you want. And then you age it or don't age it. And normally, if you're aging it, you're adding caramel color because it costs way too much to age it for 50 years to get color. So you might as well age it for three years. Add caramel color. People <laughs> think it's going to be sweet. They don't think they like sweet, but they think they like vanilla-laden things and then they'll spend $100 on it. So, <laughs> Gross overstatement, but you get where I'm going. Yeah. The difference between rum agricole and rum is rum agricole is mostly, it's, it's relegated, that term, it's made, you know it's made in like the French, French Indies. Okay. On the island of Martinique, where in order to call it rum agricole Martinique, that is a protected region of origin, just like Champagne. Okay. And they are taking fresh sugarcane juice, so you can't use molasses, you can't use any byproducts of the sugar. You're taking sugar cane and pressing it. So for anybody who's run around an island, like I have when I was on Antigua and I wanted this dude to show me different varieties of cane sugar, mm -hmm. I went and bit some and it literally tastes like you're eating sugar in the raw, but way raw-er. Mm -hmm. Now make a liquid out of that. You're just pressing it. And now you're letting that ferment with native yeast, no added anything, hmm. and then you're distilling that. Usually you're not filtering it. There's no additives usually to a good rum agricole. And so what you're left with is a difference between natural wine and conventional wine. Rum agricole being natural wine, rum Thank you. being much more like conventional wine. Yeah, and you can have some great quality conventional rums rum. just like sure. wine. Mm -hmm. But by and large, when you see rum agricole, you know that that's going to be quote-unquote, natty. It's going to yeah. be funky. You're going to be smelling cane juice and vegetables and earth and everything in between, maybe a little sweat. <laughs> With rum, it's usually like, oh, it kind of smells like beautiful molasses and is kind of tiki-like. Okay. So I will stop there. All right. And let's talk about a tropical composer. I'm I excited. Know. We're going to talk about a Haitian composer named Ludovic Lamotte. He lived from 1882 to 1953. He was born into a prominent family. They were musical. His, his, um, both his parents played piano. His grandfather was a pianist. His mother was also a poet. They were a well-known, well-to-do family. He was born in the capital, Port-au-Prince, and he studied piano and clarinet. And it became really evident from a young age that he was really talented musically, gifted. He was a talented player and also a really talented composer. When he was fairly young, probably about 18 years old, he was heard a couple of German merchants heard him perform in Haiti, and they funded 
a scholarship for him to be able to go study piano and composition in Paris. So in 1910, Ludovic went to Paris, studied for a year, came back to Haiti, and never left Haiti again. He ended up writing a lot of music that tends to get praised as you read around and about uh, about him for bridging the gap between wealthy and poor. Like he wrote music that everyone loved, and he combined styles like from the voodoo faith, which wasn't thought of very highly by, you know, nobility or aristocrats or, you know, upper class people. But he also... Catholics. <laughs> but he also combined, uh, you know, music that, that the upper echelon did like, like the Haitian meringue, which was a dance. And that was a really popular thing. So he he kind of blended these styles and from a classically trained ear and uh, became really Haiti's best known classical composer. So we're going to listen to uh, what's probably his most famous piece. It's called La Dangerous. Forgive me if that's terrible French, but uh, this is the, a dance called a meringue. And so you'll hear it. I'll, I'll point out the rhythm to you in the um, left hand usually of this piece. Two, three, four, five. One, two, three, four, five. Cinquillo. Cinquillo. Five note rhythm. One, two, three, four, five. One, two, three, four, five. One, two, three, four, five. That rhythm is part of the Haitian meringue and mm-hmm. other dances from south of, or from the trop, from tropical areas. So that's a little bit about Ludovic Lamotte. We'll hear more of his music um, in a really cool way. We've gotten to hear some really fantastic recordings here on Scores and Pours, whether it's when we got to hear, you know, Dmitry Shostakovich's music conducted by Dmitry's son and played by Dmitry's grandson. That's cool stuff. We've had some other really fun recordings on here and... uh, we're going to hear uh, more more than just this next one. It'll be really neat stuff today. So I look forward to sharing that with you, and we'll do that after we taste some rum. Yeah, sweet. I was going to say, and we've tasted some really sweet stuff. Let's just continue that with <laughs> yes, the strong stuff. Please. I wanted to just get into quickly because rum hasn't probably hasn't always been made, right? I mean, we know that a lot of byproducts like like grappa or orujo as it's called in Spanish, you know, people would press their grapes and they'd be left with grape skins and they'd be like, well, why don't we rehydrate this and make either a low wine or a low wine and and distill that, right? So people are like, have been using byproducts since the beginning of time to not yeah. waste, not want not. But in terms of an industry, rum really got its start, they think around like the early 1800s when in France, they started to make sugar. And they didn't have to, out of beet sugar, and didn't have to, or out of beets, I should say, and they didn't need to look to as much towards their colonies in the Indies to buy that product. So you saw islands that were processing sugarcane and making sugar and selling that. Now all of a sudden they were like, holy shit, this is worth so little money, we need to start working with 
all of our byproducts and selling molasses, making rum, et cetera. So that's where we, you know, the beginnings of rum kind of have their story is in the early, early 1800s or so. Let's drink. Sure. So this first rum we're going to taste is a rum agricole. And um, I'm going to put just the smallest amount in a few different glasses so Emily can and I can just smell and taste them side by side. And I guess I want to start out first with a rum that is not an agricole, but that's a very great quality rum, and then have that next to the last little smidgen of, it's got a soft spot in my heart, but let me tell you, it's from Cuba, and it's not artisanal in the least. (laughs) Um, So we can smell the difference between quote-unquote conventional and then non-conventional rum. So in a couple different glasses here, I'm going to put the... Havana Club, this is the Añejo Especial. This is like their five-ish year aged rum. And now this is owned by Bacardi, you know, so they're definitely not of the uh, artisanal route anymore. And then we've got this Hamilton. So Hamilton is a basically a negotiant slash importer of great rums from around the Caribbean who slaps their name on it so people can see, oh, Hamilton, I know this is good. But I've got here their Jamaican Pot Still Black, which is a collection of light, medium, and dark rums that are all distilled in a pot still, so a single or maybe a double batch of distilling at a time, and all from the Worthy Park Estate Sugar Mill is where all the sugarcane is hailing from. And then they're aging it afterwards, after they've distilled it, fermented and distilled it. They're aging it for right around five years, sometimes a little shy of that. And it's it produces like a very kind of full-bodied, very rich, without being necessarily sweet, um, Jamaican-style rum. So give these all a smell, Emily, and tell me what you think. All right, so... Which one first? Smell, uh, smell the Havana Club first, and then smell the Hamilton, and just kind of go back and forth smelling them, and tell me what you think. <laughs> yep. Well, the, what's this one on the left? The one that is in your glass number two. That's the Hamilton, the Hamilton. Pot Still Black from Jamaica. It smells like Worcestershire sauce. It's. I mean, it's got a ton of different aromas, right? It's got like yeah. all kinds of black, strappy, like leathery. Yeah. Cane sugar, but in a lot of different... Like you spilled a bottle of rum in a leather bag that had pickles in it. And burlap. Word. Okay, now smell the other one. Now that you got the Havana Club, right? Great quality rum, got some age on it, but it kind of just smells like like a tin of sugar that maybe has been sitting around a long time. Yeah. I can't really put my finger on what that smells like, to be honest. Well, but that's what normal, like when you get Bacardi... Yeah. gold or something yeah. like that's what it's very reminiscent of that's what people just, think of as rum it's like this yeah. kind of doesn't smell like much no it smells, it smells like, like tropical it smells like alcohol but yeah. next to this it doesn't smell like much but if you have it on its own it's like oh it's it's yeah. tiki no yeah. not really yeah now now take a little take a little sip of both and t- no, no 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 taste taste the sorry taste the Havana <laughs> Club first you're gonna ruin the Havana Club really isn't gonna taste like much hmm it's slightly sweet, but um, yeah, it's kind it's of It's like flat. rum and cokey. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so now taste this one. Yeah. And so this is what we talk about when we're talking about like yeah. artisanal rum versus not 
artisanal rum, right? Yeah. One smells oh. like, yeah, make it into a mixed drink, make a rum and coke, whatever. Yeah. But when you're getting into like you want to go dive deep with rum, mm-hmm. don't bother. Yeah. Spend money on great rum because they're also not even, sometimes not even that expensive. It's night and day. It's like you wouldn't even, if you had, you know, if you blind taste most people on that, they're not going to be able to say that one is rum and one is rum. They're well, going to say, well, this one is something that's not rum and this one is rum. You know what I mean? It just, it's night and day yeah, how different ha- those are. The Havana Club is 40% alcohol and the Hamilton Jamaican Pot Still Black is 46.5% alcohol. You can definitely feel that extra 6.5%. Wow. Do you have a preference for one or the other? Well, God, yeah, that, that the 46.5%. It's just more interesting. There's mm-hmm. more going on. It's like a little tiki party in your mouth. Yeah, and if I was going to make like a th- like a daiquiri, a three-rum daiquiri, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, throw that little Havana Club in there and have that be one of kind of the medium. Yeah. It's basically the means to end. It'll latch on to... I'm growing hair on my chest yeah, right now. Yeah, I saw now. you chug that, and I was like, good luck getting to the Mai Tai, sister. <laughs> chug that. It was like a half of an eyedropper full. It's true. <laughs> Those are the first two rums we'll taste. Maybe let's listen to some more Lamotte before we keep sipping. Yeah, let's. So an ethnomusicologist, of course, studies the music of a specific region, location, culture, uh, fill in the blank. Um, We've talked about Béla Bartók on the show before, Hungarian composer, but also a really well-respected ethnomusicologist who went around and made tons of recordings and copied down melodies from rural his rural life and stuff. So mm-hmm. there's situations like that where there are composers who are ethnomusicologists as well, but then there's just straight-up ethnomusicologists who aren't composers, whatever. They just want to go somewhere and study the music of that culture. So a man named Alan Lomax went to Haiti when he was 21 years old in 1936, and he made... 1,500 recordings of wow, just Haitian people playing music, whether it was a piano, singing a tune, playing a little stringed instrument, whatever it was, he made just hundreds upon hundreds of these recordings. And eventually those recordings found their way to the Library of Congress and just kind of sat on a shelf until the 90s. And someone discovered these, you know, round cylinder, these tins of just tape, you know, and went through and found just, I mean, it's, it's just what that did for the history of Haitian music, right? I mean, that's just it. I mean, it was Mm -hmm. amazing. And so in those recordings are two recordings of Ludovic Lamont himself playing two of his own piano pieces. And it's so cool. So on iTunes, you can find these. You can't find them on Spotify. I couldn't find them online. I'm, it's possible you can go into the Library of Congress somehow and maybe hear them that way. But so far as I know, the only place I could find them was Apple Music. And uh, not all 1,500 recordings are there, but two of these Ludovic Lamotte recordings are. So let's listen to a recording of a piece called Nebo, which is also a meringue. So you might hear that same five-note pattern, that five, yeah. So here we go. This is Ludovic Lamont himself playing Nebo. (laughs) ¶¶ 
He wrote that piece for a carnival, and so he uh, apparently made it a lot simpler so that everyone could remember it and love it, and then he won a prize for it, which is really cool. Cool. So, yep. Nibo by Ludovic Lamotte. Should and we listen to the other one just because we're yeah, here? Yeah. So he the other recording is of a tune called Loco, and I couldn't find any information about the tune itself, but uh, let's go ahead and listen to it. This is, again, Ludovic Lamotte playing his own music, Loco. is entitled Loco, a carnival dance played by the author himself, Mr. Ludovic Lamotte one of our foremost musicians at Bellevue, Port-au-Prince, December 20, 1936. Do you happen to know, is he playing on a grand piano, or do we know what kind of piano he was playing on? No idea. Awesome. Yep. And and one hand, I wish the quality of the recording was better, and on yeah. the other hand, it's like that's just that's what we have, and we're so lucky to even have it. I know it's so cool to hear him play it. I love doing that. You can hear Gershwin play Gershwin's music. You can hear Shostakovich play some of his music. You know, of course, a lot of these 20th century compo- people who were alive, I should say, in the 20th century, so you can hear these recordings occasionally, and it's just such a treat to hear. So, yeah, uh, Ludovic Lamotte, Haitian composer. He was really highly regarded, as I mentioned, as a concert pianist as well, and um, just also, like, gave a lot of recitals. And I'd love to learn more about, just in my own time, the the aspect of him incorporating, like, voodoo, mm-hmm. you know, that, that religion and, and that faith and just the elements of that music into his, yeah. to be able to... to you know, have that resonate with, with my mind because I right. don't really know what they are. Right, yeah. That's cool. Yeah, it's good stuff from Ludovic Lamont. Kelly, you want to taste some more rum? I do, yeah. So I'm going to put the smallest amount of this in a couple different glasses here. We've got the Hamilton Pot Still Black, and then I'm going to put this Duquesne. It looks like Duquesne, for those of us that like to anglicize everything we look at. This is the Duquesne Martinique Rum Blanc Agricole. So in Rum Agricole, they're usually dealing with heirloom varietals of sugarcane, not always, um, but so you're, you know, there's no kind of hybridization, GMO, you know, type of, of sugarcane going into it. This is just straight up like super heirloom, cool stuff. And for this Rum Agricole, the sugar canes, basically, on Martinique, the sugar cane fields are treated like vineyards. So they're tended to a certain way. You know, you literally can... I'm a huge proponent of mezcal being terroir-driven mm-hmm. spirit. Between that and rum agricole, I mean, I can smell it from here. And once you start smelling them, they're like... You can really get an idea of top of the hill, bottom of the hill, other side of the island, west side of the island. Like, it's insane in the different wow. soil types. So now smell the Hamilton pot still black just next to the agricole to smell the difference between a non-agricole and an agricole. And tell me tell me what you think. The pot still black, I just that's so weird that I just literally feel like I'm smelling Worcestershire sauce. 
It's so weird to me. What is that? I mean, I don't know. That's so I guess strange. I don't really get the Worcestershire sauce, but I know, I know. Yeah, I know what you mean, and that could be just the element of it being, you know, a lighter rum, a medium rum, and darker rums. It could be if they were distilled at or like fermented at a higher temperature, because mm-hmm. in a lot of these. They are, I mean, this could possibly be a native ferment. Yeah. So if this was in the Hamilton pot still black version, you don't have control over that. The right. esters and these, I mean, imagine all these native yeasts going nuts on all the sugar. And in a lot of places, like we'll talk about Claren in a moment from Haiti, you have piles, and in rum agricole, you have piles of stuff fermenting in the open air, birds shitting on it, and Lord wow. knows what else. So that's going to, you're going to get a ton of weird esters that yeah. end up getting distilled they get yeah hyper focused they you know bacteria and stuff gets killed off which yeah. is good yeah but so yeah this one burns my, the agricole burns my nose well the agricole is 50 percent <laughs> so so the duquesne rum agricole blanc is done all in a copper column still so it is done in a batch that they get to run it probably twice as my guess to get it as clean as possible without over distilling because that's just going to make it into like a something that doesn't taste like much. And it's all aged in stainless steel and left to age for just like six months and then bottled with um, very little dilution to about 50%. Mm, that's good. Okay, now taste now taste that one. <laughs> <laughs> Man, the Duquesne, so strong. The Duquesne is like drinking sugar juice that's been pureed in a health vegetable smoothie yeah like it's like tastes like kale yeah and like carrot but also yeah. like sugarcane juice which is like super mm-hmm. insane and awesome yeah it like burns my tongue yeah <laughs> um one i wanted to just show you as well so you can taste the hamilton 151 which is made it's a demerara 151 it's overproof obviously what's demerara mean 151 demerara is named after the demerara River, and it's a type of sugar cane that's kind of like sugar in the raw. It's got a little bit of a darker, kind of more amber color, um, but has is like got a unique flavor all of its own. Um, it was pop- popularized uh, around the time of like Dutch colonialism because they found a sugar that they didn't have anything like it in those colonies, and so when they brought it back, it became like this really exotic. Uh, sugar that people would use in certain baked goods, you know, and of course. N- Rum producers will use the byproducts of demerara in their sugar, in this case, pressing, making juice. All demerara is from the country of Guyana. So oh. we're up in the right alongside Venezuela, close to Colombia, that area north of Brazil, right on the ocean. Um, and smell this puppy because this is <laughs> this is intense. I use Hamilton 151 as like a float. This is a float. Like pour this on top of your tiki drink because if you put it in stuff – Pardon me, mom and dad. You're just going to fuck yourself up. Like, don't do that. You know, you're just looking for problems. Hold on. And so when I, I'm going to instruct Emily just a second. When you smell it, don't give it a wine smell. Give it a. Yeah. Because then you really get that notion of the sugar. Um, I told her to kind of pass it under your nose very briefly. Because if you give it a wine smell, oops. So this is aged uh, for five years, and this is a combination of pot still and column still. So you've got, one, you know, some of the batches that they make of this, they put it through the pot still maybe once or twice. So it's a single batch. You can only distill one batch at a time. F- distill another batch. 
there's still another batch. You can keep putting stuff in it, but you have to manually do it. It's not like a column still where it will run itself. <laughs> Emily's having a situation over on the other side of the booth. Oh, it's strong, isn't it? <coughs> it's so strong. Yeah. It tastes kind of like Ruri Boost tea. It set my mouth on fire. I know. I'm it's just like kind of used to tasting stuff like that. Fucking so Goldschlager or something. <laughs> You should see, like, everybody should see the furled brow. Emily looks like I pulled a trick on her or something. No, it just is, it's a, you know, it is really, but that's why this is, this has a certain purpose, right? This in like, in cocktails and in tea, you know, nobody's sipping 151, you know what I mean? That's kind of just to give you a very brief, you know, you got industrial, Mm -hmm. Havana Club, five year, rum agricole, which we tasted the Duquesne rum blanc agricole from Martinique. We've got uh, very artisanal, but uh, not considered agricole, even though it's likely made in a very similar fashion. Uh, from Jamaica, the pot's still black. And then we've got the Guyana Hamilton 151, made on the banks of the Demerara River. Overproof. Get ready for Mai Tais. But let's listen to maybe <laughs> a, another composer first. Uh, next, we're going to Venezuela uh, to a woman named Teresa Carreño. And Teresa lived from 1853 to 1917 and is called the Valkyrie of the piano. She was just a wicked good uh, pianist. And she also was a soprano, so she sang. She sang in operas that were performed. I mean, she was, you know, a professionally trained singer. And she composed music. She also was a conductor. She bounced around a lot, though. She was born in Caracas to a musical family, um, in, like I said, 1853, they moved to New York City in 1962. And when they lived in New York City, she took uh, piano lessons and studied with another composer named Louis or Louis Gottschalk in New York. And Gottschalk even talks, talked about her, like how special she was and prodigy and kind of taking her under his wing. And so that's kind of a neat, a neat connection. But then she really bounced around between Europe and the U.S. after that. So New York City, they moved there in 62. Then they moved to Paris in 66. And after that, she kind of went back and forth a couple times between the United States and and Europe. She wrote about 75 pieces of music for piano and voice and choir, uh, some orchestral stuff. She wrote an orchestral serenade, I think, that's lovely and impossible to find a recording of. And she did a little bit of chamber music which chamber music would be like a duet or a trio, maybe a quartet, quintet, you know, small stuff that you could fit in someone's living room. So that's a little background on her. Another awesome recording we're going to hear right now is a piano roll of Teresa Carreño playing her own music. So she made this piano roll, and then when you play the piano roll in a player piano, you hear her playing her piece. So this is a tune, super cool. This is a piece she wrote called Little Waltz. with the timing I like how it's um, very romantic you know it's not so punctual yeah 
Gosh, this is a recording of her playing it. Well, it's a piano roll of her. Yeah. Cool. So, That's awesome. sort of. Are you going to make me a Mai Tai? Yes, I absolutely am. In the Mai Tai, there's always rum. There's an orange liqueur of sorts, like a Grand Marnier or like a triple sec. There is lime juice, almond milk, or orgeat, which is a almond liqueur. I like to just use almond milk. I think it's easier. I actually make it into ice cubes and then I dilute it or I melt it as I need it because let's face it, I'm not making uh, Mai Tais at my house like every other day. And I should be though. Simple syrup and then I've got a strong rum for a float. Some people just use one rum and they say that's, you know, one rum and you're good to go. I like to use a combination of the two rums that we spoke of that are, is the Jamaican Hamilton Pot Still Black and then the Duquesne Rum Blanc Agricole from Martinique. The total rum bill here, I like to measure in milliliters. I like to do milliliters because I think it's a little bit more precise, but let's face it, it's a tiki drink, so if you're, you know. So I usually use about 60 milliliters in a combination of the rums, but it's a tiki drink again, so it ends up being probably about 80 milliliters. So the Rum Blanc, the Agricole, because it's 50%, you know, I'm just gonna probably use, I don't know, maybe 40 milliliters or something like that to put in here. That'll go first. And then I'll do maybe about 20 to 30 of this pot still black. I, I shoot for between 60 and 80 mils uh, of a, you know, when I just said do mils because it's more exact. For triple sec, 10 mils for this. Then we've got the Orgeat, which is literally 20 milliliters, so hardly any at all. For lime juice, I use give or take 25 milliliters. I like mine nice and acidic and limey. I would rather have it a little bit more acidic than sweet. So if you bump up to 30 mils, good for you. A little more vitamin C these days, never hurt anybody. And then simple syrup, it's literally five milliliters. So you're hardly using any at all. You're just trying to balance, you know, the strength, the acid. I'm putting freshly chipped ice from Ms. Reese into the shaker. And let's get shaken, bacon. Sometimes I like to taste it first just to make sure that it's diluted enough. Um, uh -huh. Sure. Oh. <laughs> That's just sick is what that is. So now I take a fresh, I like uh, just freshly chipped ice and I do like it in, my favorite glass to drink a Mai Tai in is in a like a cider, like a Bosque cider glass, like a, almost like a pint glass but that's got thinner, thinner glass. And I'm actually going to have put my float, get my float all ready, um, which is 10 milliliters of the strong stuff. 
that Emily made that face about earlier. You know, maybe 13 mils, because why not? Explain what a float is. A float is you're putting rum, you're putting some liquid on top of all of, in a layer above the cocktail or above all the other liquids. I'm straining out the old ice. You could use the old ice, but I just kind of like to pour it atop fresh ice. And it usually makes about three quarters or so of a Bosque cider glass. And then I just like to take this nice little float and drizzle it along the top and it literally will make for a couple like millimeters of rum. Give it a taste, Ms. Reese. Oh. Hashtag summer of rum. Okay, so what do you think of the Mai Tai? Well, I feel like I'm drunk now. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I only had like a couple drinks, but it's just so delicious. Like, I don't think I'd... Two things, two things. Before I met Jill Mott, I'd never had a Mai Tai. I'd never even had a daiquiri. I'd had frozen daiquiris, quote but I've never had the re like a real rum daiquiri, which are also delicious, and perhaps we should find a way to do a show on. But uh, <laughs> Just daiquiris? Yeah. There actually aren't any composers. Yeah. It's just daiquiris. <laughs> we just speculate about which composers might have liked daiquiris. <laughs> But um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's amazing to have this Mai Tai. The only thing I wish I had is a little tiny umbrella in the drink. That's all that's missing. That is part of the fun, right, is like a beautiful edible flower, citrus, citrus rind, an umbrella. I think it's part of it. You know, it, like yeah. especially now that we actually in Minnesota can enjoy some 80 degree temperatures with mm -hmm. a with a proper warm climate drink. Yeah. Yeah, the garnishes. The garnish is like half of it. So I agree with you, and I apologize that I did not tote that with me. The lime juice, too. Spot on. Yeah, it could have used a little more simple, but that's okay. I'm always like, how could I make it better? <laughs> okay, we, we have another One Teresa more. Carreño, right? Yep. But you know what? Before we go on there, just because we're tasting the Mai Tai, mm -hmm. and we have Victor J. Bergeron to thank for the Mai Tai. And... As much as I say Bergeron with a slight French inflection, I'm definitely not alluding to the fact that this cocktail hails from France or the French Virgin Islands. On the contrary, this cocktail was invented in Oakland, California, people. Victor had a place called Trader Vic's in the 40s and 50s, and actually it's it's still extant today. And at Trader Vic's, he was having, he was inviting some friends that were traveling all the way from Tahiti to visit him, and he wanted to showcase a new cocktail for them. He had a 17-year-old rum that he adored. He wanted to include that. And so he decided to make this drink that has all of the components of the modern-day Mai Tai. When he presented it, you know, everybody drank it. They had they had fun drinking it. And one of the women at the table, she exclaimed, Mai Roy, eh? That translates to out of this world. And the name stuck, it was shortened, obviously, to Mai Tai. That's the history, and that's where we get the name Mai Tai. won't go too much into it here, but tiki culture is really pretty fascinating. And, you know, as much as the drinks are about like getting blasted or getting a buzz on, 
they are really intricate and they are really strong. So I would highly recommend that if you're going to have like a tiki party, have like one or two cocktails that you're going to like learn to make with your friends plan that you're going to have two and then the show is going to be done, you know, because the minute you're like, yeah, I'll have a third tiki drink, <laughs> your day is going to suck for about four days because yeah. just there's way too strong. Um, but they can be really balanced. So in this drink, like, I love that you do taste every element, that element of Grand Marnier and what is, in my world, I use the the almond milk. Like, you can taste those two together. There's a cocktail called the Jungle Bird cocktail, and it's like... One of my most favorite drinks that I've had recently in the tiki department. And why? Because we're adding one of my favorite things, something bitter, into the equation. So there's lime juice and there's simple and there's rum, but there's Campari, which is really, really fun. Um, so I highly recommend trying a Jungle Bird. You can find a great recipe from Punch Magazine that will include a link for that. And then I would be remiss if I didn't talk about Claren for a hot second, C-L-A-I-R-I-N. And Claren is the Haitian version of rum. And the Haitian version of, usually it's rum agricole because there are 50 to 60 distilleries around the Caribbean. There are 500 on the island of Haiti plus. What? Micro, literally like little tiny shacks of people that are just like on a hyper micro scale doing their own little batches of Claren. That's like a running joke between my friends is if I, you can't find me, I'm finding out how to make Claren and <laughs> learning about heirloom varieties of sugarcane on that island. And so just having talked about uh, Sir Ludovic Lemot, I'd be remiss if I didn't say, hey, go get yourself some rum agricole, invest in some really fun artisanal rum, but also, you know, you kind of have to seek it out if you're not in an in a urban center, but Claren... Uh, from Haiti is really, really something special. Cool. So I look forward to trying that someday. Let's hear one more piece of music by Teresa Carreño. And again, from Venezuela. This is a piece I really liked, just called Bursus, just a small um, solo piano piece. This is her Opus 35. I wish I had really insightful commentary, but my mind has gone into a place of warm places and <laughs> rum, and now I'm just listening to it with pure delight. I'm on a yacht, a beach, a pontoon, and sipping on a little rum cocktail. It's a beautiful little piano piece here. Yeah. Jill Mott, thank you for the delicious Mai Tai and the experience of trying these different rums. What a great way to learn about the difference between all these products, you know? Sit down and taste them all. To scores and pours. Scores and pours.
Thank you for listening to Scores and Pours with Jill Mott and Emily Reese. You can find links and information about this episode at patreon.com slash scoresandpours and on Instagram at scoresandpours. If you like the show, consider making a financial contribution to patreon.com slash scoresandpours. Edited by Emily Reese and Jill Mott, our producer is Sam Keenan. Scores and Pours is a production of June Media, Inc., 